Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to Anti-Bullying 101. These podcasts are designed to create awareness about the bullying epidemic and provide teachers, administrators, parents, and even students about the dangers of bullying and why we have to take a comprehensive approach when dealing with the problem. My name is Jim Burns. I'm a retired high school administrator with over 40 years of experience in education. Currently, I'm a college instructor and I've designed the Bullyproof Classroom, a graduate course that provides my students with permanent help, not temporary relief, as they battle the bullying epidemic. Today, we're going to begin a series and we're going to be talking about certain behaviors that kids exhibit and when they're not dealt with correctly, will weaken any classroom or school. When too many of these behaviors exist, everyone can suffer from what I call the kryptonite syndrome. Today, we're going to be discussing a problem that is pervasive in schools that really leads to irresponsible behavior. What do we do with a kid that continuously lies and how do we hold this kid accountable? Believe it or not, this behavior contributes to the bullying problem that we face in schools each and every day. Now, it's not so much that kids lie. It's the reason why they lie. Most people lie out of fear. Fear of a reaction, disappointing someone, or a consequence are all reasons why some Someone tells lies or bends the truth. Embellishments and exaggeration are forms of lying and usually are used to self-inflate the image of the person in the eyes of others. There are actually three different types of liars that teachers and parents may encounter in the classroom and if they are not dealt with will produce adults who will become compulsive liars. The first type of liar is the situational reactive liar. This kid can handle the reaction of others and is or was, or was probably disciplined pretty harshly for his behavior in the past. The discipline usually occurred when he told the truth or, or maybe even when he lied they now have a difficult time trying to figure out the truth and determining what someone wants to hear. So he walks around in life poking around in the dark in order to say or do what is pleasing to others. You may never get the truth out of this kid and will have difficulty trusting him and supporting his behavior. Next type of liar that we have is the con artist. This kid could sell ice to an Eskimo. He's a schmoozer. He's likable. And the homework that he said he would turn in tomorrow will end up a zero in your grade book. You'll never see it. He'll end up being called on his behavior and, was li- and he'll usually lie his way out using circumstantial excuses that sound so good you don't even... You, you don't know how it couldn't be true but it's not the truth and we bought it the next type of liar that we have is the withholder 
this type of liar teachers deal with the most. This student, when asked about something that occurred, will give you 90% of the story which is truthful. The other 10% is left out, that's left out is the part that incriminates him. At a young age, this is fancied as ratting as the students look to get others in trouble, even though he may have been part of the wrongdoing. This kid can also be a situational reactive liar as he's frightened of consequences and will do whatever he can to avoid it. These are typically good kids who have a perfectionistic mentality and who at times can be arrogant and never want to admit to any wrongdoing. So how do we deal with these types of kids? Kids that lie pervasively at different levels. As bad as this may seem, once you discover that you have a liar on your hands, believe none of what you hear and half of what you see. Investigate everything and realize that in this day and age, kids do lie. With this kid, it's not innocent until proven guilty. It's guilty until proven innocent. My name is Jim Burns, and thank you for joining me in Anti-Bullying 101. Stay tuned for my other podcast as we deal with certain behaviors that I call the kryptonite syndrome. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio. My name is Jim Burns, and it's Tuesday night, uh, April 23rd, 2013, and I come to you from the friendly confines of my warm and cozy home here in Bricktown, New Jersey. I don't know about you, but the weather's just been too chilly for me. Uh, uh, I I still have my heat on, and it's uh, just uh, chilly as can be outside, but it's warm in here, and we're going to be talking to you tonight about a few topics that are related to bullying. Uh, one of the topics is up on my website right now at www.bullyproofclassroom.com, and uh, I think it's the lead story there right now, and it's, it's called Playground Politics. Uh, and if you'd like to weigh in on, on the discussion uh, please call 646-595-4965. Again, that number, 646-595-4965. We are a um, uh, show that welcomes all opinions, all thoughts on any topics that we that we speak about. Uh, this, the, our, our shows have, we get, we have not been getting listeners uh strictly because I don't market enough 
but our downloads are unbelievable. Uh, and uh, we just did a show yesterday, which was the uh, anti-bullying tip of the week. And um, I tell you, we, we've already got several hundred downloads on it. We are now on iTunes, uh, which, in a, as you know, you can get that right through your phone. So you can hear the uh, all of the episodes of the Bullyproof Classroom right there on iTunes. Uh, again, we are at 646-595-4965. I welcome your calls. The story that we're speaking about tonight has been, I, I actually heard this story. I was coming back. I was coming back from Virginia, and uh, I can't get any um, any radio and uh, on on my regular radio in the car. And I had the uh, had my phone, and I do have radio dot com uh, there and. Um, I can get different stations, and it was spoken about, um, I'm trying to think, it was about two or three weeks ago, but it was about a school district in New Hampshire. Uh, it was the Wyndham Schools in New Hampshire, and they cited dodgeball as a game that used human targets and claimed that it may have been contributing to a bullying problem. Now, I'm just going to read a line or two here for you so you can get a feel for what I'm I'm going to be speaking about. Students attending Wyndham schools in New Hampshire won't be dodging balls during gym class anymore. The school district voted to ban dodgeball and other human target sports in a recent 4-to-1 decision, according to multiple sources. The superintendent, whose name is Henry LeBlanche, says we spend a lot of time making sure our kids are violence-free. Here we have games where we use children as targets. That seems to be counter to what we're trying to accomplish with our anti-bullying campaign. He claims we spend a lot of time trying to deal with the safety of our children, and we we do want to take all the steps that are necessary. Now, my thoughts on this. I think we really have to take a look at what's really happening and how we have to help our kids develop greater resiliency and really to learn how to compete and develop stronger pro-social skills, and it's through something that I call playground politics. And just think about kids who are six, seven years old, five years old. Uh, they're, they're, they're on the playground. They're dealing with each other all the time. They're dealing with one another. Um, and you do have some adult supervision. You may have, and that can be limited based on the um, amount of um, staff that people have out on the playground. And they monitor how the kids play. And I truly wonder, now I know bullying occurs in unsupervised areas, and I know that kids, you know, are going to have conflict and, and other things, that are just related to getting along. And their adults have to step in 
and so on and try to make sure that they're they're not you know getting too frisky or they're going to hurt each other or maybe have a fight or say mean things to one another and all of that and that all has to be taught um kids need to be taught how to get along at a young age the problem is is some adults don't know how to get along and then what they, and then what they do is they use those skills to try and teach kids how to get along and i could always remember as a as a young kid on any day during the summer i would leave with a ball and a bat and a glove and man i'd play baseball till the sun went down and we had no supervision just a group of guys got together to play and we always had a dollar or two in our pocket you know and they, maybe we'd go over to a hot dog wagon and get a hot dog and a soda we work we welcomed other kids that wanted to play we took breaks cuz it was in the hot sun we worked on our skills and and different things and we just overall had a great time now the question is did we all get along well of course not and believe it or not there were bullies amongst us and we experienced that at that certain time some of the intimidation and the fear because of these kids that were bullies okay we really did, but everyone stayed and played, and we solved our own problems. We worked on getting along and discovered what I call a healthy pecking order on the field. And some of the lessons that we learned really did last a lifetime. We all knew how to play the game of playground politics. Now, I am not a proponent of bullying, nor do I believe that it's something sort of rite of passage but I do believe that bullying is on the rise in part in part because of the inability of our kids today to develop greater emotional resiliency and to solve interpersonal problems on their own one of the goals of any anti-bullying program should be to strengthen the victim and provide them with pro-social skills that are necessary to function in an adult world. See, now, this superintendent of schools in in New Hampshire, he wants to be sure that kids are violence-free. I don't think any any kids are going to be violence-free. I really don't. And I think that maybe we should work on some of the displaced anger that parents have. You know, parents who are angry, who are dysfunctional in their own way, okay, need to really understand that that dysfunction and their inability to get along with other adults, they displace that on their own kids. And the kids bring that into school. And we have to get a better understanding that competition is healthy and kids need to learn how to compete in that healthy way. We learn from competition. Now, you want to ban dodgeball. Now, is is dodgeball the only sport that is exclusive and potentially violent? Well, why don't we 
Why don't we ban football, hockey, lacrosse? I mean, even soccer can have some type of body contact. Sports do involve exclusion. That's all there is to it. There's no way around it. You strike out, you're out. You can get taken out of a game because either your skills are poor or you uh, you, you just, you know, are not doing well that uh, on that day. There there are things that kids participate in and we're going to share them that are exclusive. And sports to a degree do have a lot of body contact. They do involve some emotion. And above all, they are competitive. And we can't have kids shying away from competition because they're going to have to compete in this world. So let's take a look at what, what kids can learn by properly playing the game of playground politics and how it can benefit them as they move forward into adult life. Now, understand a couple, they're going to have to understand a couple of things here. First one is life is not win win. Win win is a beautiful thing. But you tell me when, if people are involved, I mean, even in a family. Even in a marriage, if there's actually win-win at any time, means you win and I win. I don't think that exists, strictly because of the fact that even if I compromise to make to make life a little bit easier and you compromise, I still sacrificed half of what I believed in or a portion of what I believed in. And that's the way and that's the way it actually is. My daughter Grace was involved and she's still involved uh, with a traveling soccer team. And several years ago at the conclusion of the season, she and some of the other kids got together and they received a trophy. You know, everybody gets together, they had a little end of the season party, you know, and she got she got a trophy. Now, Grace never missed practice, went to all the games. She talked to the coach. She talked to her teammates. She was good at what she did. She, as a matter of fact, she was the MVP of the team, and she received a special trophy because of that accomplishment. Now, this is a kid that's about at the time, 10 or 11 years old. And on the way home in the car, Grace said to me, Dad, you know about half of the team mispractices? They didn't go to games and really and really, never gave their best effort when they played for the girls. I think she cited four or five girls. And then the, here, here was the question that left my mouth hanging open. How do they deserve a trophy? How do they deserve a trophy? Well, how do they deserve a trophy? 
I mean, I know it's nice. I, I really do. I think it's wonderful that, you know, you want to hand out trophies to kids. But the wrong message gets sent here. You know, and if everybody won, okay, if everybody won, and believe me, everyone's not a winner. If that truly were the case, we'd have two Super Bowl champs. We wouldn't need a World Series. And we we wouldn't even need political elections. The game of playground politics needs to reinforce the fact that there are those that are bigger, better, smarter, stronger, and kids need to learn how to recognize those skills in other kids. And they have to understand that they may not be on the same level playing ground as everybody else. I went to, yeah, I was in grammar school, I was in high school. Yeah, I, I didn't have some of the same academic skills as some of the other kids. The ground wasn't level. That's all there was to it. Some kids are just smarter, bigger, stronger, and have greater skill academically and in terms of sports. I had a re- and, and truly the, the kids that were better at what they did in terms of baseball, basketball or whatever the case might be, okay? I had I learned how to respect those those greater skills in my teammates. I got my good feelings because I practiced and put forth my best effort. Did we always win? No, we lost a lot. I can remember the the movie Moneyball, which I I probably could watch every night if I was given the chance to. Where Billy Bean, who was the general manager of the Oakland Athletics, put a you know a baseball team together that in 2002 won 20 consecutive games. They went on to the playoffs, and they lost in the first round. Now, his heart and soul was into constructing a team on a shoestring budget, and he did. But in the final analysis, he's still trying to win the last game of the season, which would make the Oakland Athletics the World Series champions. Everybody doesn't win. There are winners. There are losers. And losers have to accept loss as just a part of life. Just a part of life. Are you seeing the picture? See, kids go to school. They compete academically. And they may compete in a sport. They could compete in anything. And they have to learn at an early age that it's okay to lose. Every kid, everybody, every person doesn't win. You go on a job interview and you don't get the job, you're lost. Somebody else got it. You tip your hat to the person and away you go and you go on to the next thing. We don't realize what we're teaching our kids when we when we level the ground and recognize them all for the same thing. As a matter of fact, my daughter said to me, 
she said, Dad, there should be three three trophies. Most valuable player, most improved in sportsmanship. Those are the three trophies they should give out. And you know what? I I, I got to agree with her. Competition is good at any age. See, we want to we want to withhold that from little kids because we don't want them to feel bad. And as adults, we compete all the time for promotion, academic recognition. And really, at times, status, you know, it's like we're always trying to keep, like that line, keep up with the Joneses. Somebody always wants something a little bigger and better, and somebody else gets it, and and then you want to have the same thing. It's something that, that is just part of, of life, It's and it, it's part of adult life for sure. Kids need to know how to compete in the real world as soon as they enter the game of playground politics. See, we're trying to eliminate games like dodgeball, tag, and and I know there was one school district that wanted to eliminate spelling bees because that promotes exclusion. And it does. It does. Think about that for a minute. All these kids in an auditorium, and they have to spell certain words. And they spell a word wrong. They're out. They're out. Okay. And that's the way it goes. That's the way it goes. Problem comes in is we don't we're even eliminating spelling bees from schools because we don't want kids to feel bad. And believe it or not, some of our kids are beginning to feel good about themselves for no apparent reason. They're starting to develop an entitlement mentality and believe that the world revolves around them. And they absolutely don't have a clear understanding about their own limitations. Now, I can attest to the fact that we want kids to believe that they can do anything. I understand that. Matter of fact, the one of the lines years ago was you can can be anybody or do anything that that you want to. You can do you can become anything you want. Well, you know, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I wanted to be a professional baseball player. Badly. Unfortunately, I'm sitting here in my living room doing blog talk radio, talking to you guys, and I certainly am not a professional baseball player. Did I want to be one? You bet. Was I one? No, I wasn't. Kids who don't understand the concept of competition begin to see it as a threat to who they are. And they and they don't participate in competitive games or competitive activities for fear of losing. See, it's okay to compete and lose. You competed, it's okay. 
You were not picked. You were cut from the team. I was cut from teams myself. There was a school district a few years back in northern New Jersey, and it faced a a pretty big dilemma. Six students had a grade point average that were so close in number, meaning they had to carry this thing out to, I don't know how many places, that they couldn't decide who the valedictorian of the school was going to be. Now, this, unless I missed something, the simple use of a calculator could would, would have been very helpful in making that determination. But because the district feared parental complaints and, law, and lawsuits, all six students were named valedictorian. Explain that to me. One valedictorian, one salutatorian. How could you have six valedictorians in a school? They all didn't have the same grade point average. Carry the carry the numbers out to the the last decimal point. And at the very end, if somebody's a two and you're a one, I win. The parents and the kids were so fearful that they were going to lose. And and they believed that we all should win. And they were up in arms because the district, you know, was going to award one valedictorian award to a student that they gave it to six kids. I don't know who it's unfair to. Probably unfair to all six of them. At that point, I believe that if everybody wins, nobody wins. And that's what happened in this case. Now, get out on the playground, start running around. You start to see the abilities on, that some of the kids have. Little kids, some of them are better at jungle, on the jungle gym. Some of them are pretty good on swings. Some can throw a ball further. Some are better at dribbling a ball. Some can hit a wiffle ball further. Some play kickball better. There's all kinds of abilities that are on that field. And some of them are very natural. They're very natural abilities. And the interesting thing is that kids have to grow and begin to take a look at and respect someone else's abilities. You know, I I I often wanted to look like Brad Pitt or George Clooney or one of these other leading men or I'd watch bodybuilding competition on TV and I'd, you know, say, oh man, did that, you know, these guys look terrific. I wonder how I could get to that point. Looks are genetic. Sometimes athletic ability is genetic. Some people get it. 
some don't. And you have to respect the ability that that other people have. You know, kids know on the playground that if the kid that was it in the game of tag was the fastest running kid in the school, that he wasn't going to be it for very long. His speed was respected. If we were playing baseball, the last thing we wanted to see was the best hitter coming up to bat on the baseball team with the bases loaded. Why? The kid that's it is the fastest kid in the school. The kid that could hit had the most ability in terms of hitting, and now he's got a chance to win. We didn't want to see these people. We didn't want them around. You know why? They were going to win the game, and they would never be, and they would never be it. They'd always catch us, and usually they'd catch me because I wasn't a fast runner. Kids need to learn how to respect and, at times, admire those with greater abilities than them. And I don't mean, you know, admire, you know, to feel bad about someone else having greater ability than you, but just to recognize it as something that's unique to them. Kids need to know this and work on this. The adults are, you know, very tough on them. You know, they're very tough, too. See, they they don't get enough of it in the home. Envy or whatever, for either for a job promotion or, you know, bigger house or whatever the case. You know, and kids are never taught. Hey, you know what? He's really good. He's a good. He's a good ball player. I wonder what he does different than what we do. I'm not trying to make a kid feel bad. I'm trying to make him understand that everyone has different skill levels and different academic levels. Kids can become fearful and at times angry when they enter into competition with someone who has greater athletic or academic skills than they have. And once you have this, once you have this, the schools then eliminate competition because they don't want to affect the self-esteem of the child. Well, what the, you know, what is self-esteem anyway? What is self-esteem? I don't even see it as self-esteem. I see it as self-acceptance. I have to accept who I am, where I am, where I've come from, my parents, my brothers and sisters, my lot in life. Those are things that I have to accept and learn internally how to feel good about who I am, where I come from, and what I'm about. And when we don't, when we believe that everybody's going to feel bad because of the fact that they you know don't have the same abilities it does nothing more than to prepare a kid for a life of jealousy and envy as they grow older and they're only going to wish that they were someone else kids have to learn how to be happy with who they are they have to learn to be content in their own skin moving forward into adult life. Your parents aren't going to change. My parents aren't going to change. And most of the time, kids will grow up in life, and that's the first thing that they'll want to change. 
They see somebody else's parents when they go visit homes and so on, and they want to have different parents. Or they get upset with their brother or their sister. Or they don't like the town that they live in. And they become a group of complainers who believe that they got dealt a bad hand growing up in life. Then all of a sudden they don't get a job that they wanted. And what happens is, okay, they start to develop the same attitude that they of of envy and jealousy, stuff that could have been conquered on the playground when they were younger. The social and emotional window for a kid's brain is five years old. I've shared this a thousand times. And whatever thoughts and conclusions that a kid has drawn about himself or herself, it's usually locked up by the age of five in the brain and the window closes. And that once that window closes, what's on the inside becomes like a greenhouse. And those little seeds that were planted start to grow every day and soon they become a redwood tree when that child becomes an adult. And if the stuff troubles him or her bad enough, what will happen is that's when you got to get a therapist to come in, break the glass, reach in, and help this person rearrange those thoughts or maybe draw different conclusions about who they are. Kids who are really learning how to handle the playground and can play playground politics, they learn how to make friends a whole lot easier. And kids want and need friends, but sometimes knowing how to pick a friend can be troublesome for for some. Sometimes kids will pick a friend because the the kid who they see as a potential friend is a bully and they don't want to get picked on by him, so they pick a kid who is picking on others. He may have even picked on him. And sometimes we see this, you know, as you know, just like good fun telling jokes. It but it's not all fun if both parties aren't laughing. Games like basketball and football and other sports can give kids a sense of team play. And I'm not talking here about sports that kids play in an organized way as part of a traveling soccer team or ball team or whatever. I'm talking about the things that they do on the playground every single day. And we have reduced recess time dramatically in our public schools in this country. And I'll share why later on. I was working in a um, a school a few years back, and I, you know, the kids ate lunch and they had time to go out on the playground. These were eighth grade boys, and they stood around. They were standing around on the playground. So I figured, you know, I'm going to go in. I was there as a consultant. I figured I'm going to go in, get a few basketballs, give them to the guys, let them play. I brought the basketballs out. I handed them to the kids. They started throwing the balls at one another. 
They didn't have a sense of how to organize themselves in order to play a game. They didn't shoot the ball. They threw the ball all over the all over the lot. They had no idea how to pick up uh, how to uh, pick teams for a five-on-five game. And you know, when you can put together a pickup game, it can really help kids make friends and de- and develop greater friendships with kids with similar abilities who can play and compete with them on a reasonable level. And they'll learn how to offer encouragement to one another, which is what it's really all about, because lots of times compliments that kids get are far better received, far better received from their peers as opposed to adults. And I really hate to say it, but I think once parents and coaches get involved in organizing kids, sometimes the sense of fun and friendship seems to be taken out of the sport, and the kids suffer, the kids suffer, hear this now, from the frustration and anxiety and often the tension of competition. That's not what it's about. Competition is healthy. We're not supposed to feel frustrated and anxious, but that that frustration and anxiety gets imposed upon them by a coach because he's yelling and screaming at them for making the wrong play, making the wrong pass. And we just saw it at Rutgers. I wonder how much tension and stress those kids were under with their coach, Mike Rice, kicking them, throwing the ball at them, grabbing them, and pushing them during practice. That team... A college team is taught to compete. But what happens? How fearful am I at 19 or 20 years old if I believe when I get over to the sidelines, I'm going to be berated, called names, grabbed, pushed, shoved, okay, and and, me to, and, and made to feel like I absolutely am the lowest thing on the food chain because I made a wrong pass. That is not what competition is about. It's about camaraderie encouragement, and a group of people developing ability and a love for the sport that they're playing. That's what it's about. That's what should be taught on the playground. Kids don't know this, and that's why it's up to us to develop, maybe even develop some of this, some of these thoughts in, our, in ourselves, who we are. The playground teaches a balance, and it also teaches academic consistency. Now, I don't know about where you live, but in my state, in New Jersey, we have to pass a standardized test, the kids do, that determines their placement for the next school year. Not to mention the fact that they get state funding, you know, if all kids do well. And the teachers... The schools have basically trained the teachers that they have to teach to the test, which means from September until who knows when, March in the spring, okay, they they, they basically just drill and kill on this test so that these kids are going to have the requisite academic skills. All fall, all winter, they're just absolutely hammered, this test is just hammered into them. 
and less and less time gets spent moving around and more and more time gets spent in a seat. There is absolutely no balance in academics and in the idea that I can move. You see, if I am constantly in my seat, and, I mean, when I was a kid, go to school, teacher would say to us, look, let's get this work done, and if we're done with all our work by 2 o'clock and we go home at 2.45, we'll go outside and we'll play softball in the springtime. Maybe we'll play a little football, something like that. Today, when kids finish their work, what happens is what they have to look forward to is more work. Kids get out of balance and suffer from what I call a scarcity mentality. And what this means is that there is the the time for movement is scarce, so the students have to figure out a way to steal it during class time. That's why kids are out of their seat. That's why kids are talking when they shouldn't be talking. They're moving around. They get nailed and they get they get uh, accused of cutting up, you know, and so on. Kids need a certain amount of movement during the day. And I'm not a big proponent, you know, of cooperative learning and all these other things that schools have now where everybody sits in little pods, you know, where they're supposed to be there. But it's like you got, you're sitting next to each other, and I'm not supposed to talk to you, you know, and so on. What I am told, it's like saying no talking, no moving. Well, the minute I hear no talking, no moving, what happens is the first thing that comes into my mind is how am I going to steal this now because I can't do it with permission. Students develop greater academic consistency and success by giving the time to be involved in what I call free play. Doesn't mean you just throw them outside. It means you give them an opportunity, even as a teacher, go outside. You become the official pitcher in a softball game or the official quarterback. If you can. And let the kids have time. They'll learn more outside playing than they're going to learn in that classroom. Now, I've given you some stuff that I think is rather important. And I think right now I'm going to share the most important piece with you. And I think we have to understand it real well. And that's this word that I'm going to share with you is called coaching. Coaching. Coaching is not just about sports. We all have to understand that. It's not just about sports. It's about life. See, we are adults. I am 58 years old. I am an adult. If my daughter comes to me and asks me a question... 
about who she's getting along with, who she's not getting along with. What do I do if I like a boy? Um, what sport should I go out for? What courses should I take in high school? Or while I'm in high school, should I try to take tougher courses because um, I want to be in a position so that uh, I can get into college when I graduate? How do I talk to a teacher in high school so that I can make them understand that I really care about the subject? Questions that kids ask and have on their mind, we have to have the ability to answer. All the way up to things like, how do I deal with relationships even as I grow older? Who do I pick as a life partner? Or at least give me some direction as to who is going to, who would be good for me in life, rather than allowing me to try and figure it out on my own. And these are all things that should be discussed with kids when they're young, when they're very young. How to cooperate even though you disagree. How to disagree with the right attitude. How to say please and thank you. What does respect mean? Respect means you have a high regard for the rights and privileges of another person. What is responsibility? The ability to follow through on things and tasks. The ability to get things done. The ability to start something and then finish it. That's part of responsibility. What does the word maturity mean? Maturity, there's two definitions that I have. One, it is the ability to cooperate even though I might disagree. Sounds simple, doesn't it? There are plenty of people who are on a job today. If they disagree with their boss, they don't want to do what their boss says. And there are plenty of children in school today. If they disagree with the teacher, they don't want to do what the teacher says. Somebody's in charge. Somebody is a CEO. Somebody is middle management. Somebody is a supervisor. Somebody's the principal. Somebody's the vice principal. Somebody is the boss. The kids need to learn how to listen to the boss, but understand that they, they may have to cooperate sometimes when they disagree. And also, when they want to disagree, they can do it with the right attitude. Second definition of of maturity is the uh, the ability to subordinate an impulse to a value. Think about that. You have an impulse. You have to measure what you want to do and see if it lines up with your belief system. Kids don't know this. Kids function off of impulse. They have to be taught how to how to uh, develop a value system so that they can go forward in life and make the correct decisions. This is all part of coaching. And if we want our kids to develop pro-social skills, we've got to coach them through what I call the game of life. 
because ultimately they're going to have to do things in my app. My children are going to have to do things in my absence, not in my presence. How do you measure your success as a parent when you look at your children? What skills will your children have that you can look at them and say, ah, I was rather successful. You may not even see some of those abilities in your kids, but you will see them in your grandchildren when you watch your kids raise their kids. And you'll know if what you taught them was enough and if they had the ability to develop all of the above that I just spoke about. What parents do in moderation, children will do in excess. And parents at times can talk about the teacher in the home, complain about their job, talk about neighbors, spread rumors, gossip, and so on. And and above all, parents are real good at complaining. Complain about everything. And kids then begin to believe that they got a they there's something wrong with everybody else and there's nothing wrong with me. We have to teach our kids how to be graceful losers. We have to teach our kids how to develop friendship skills. We have to help them compete in a respectful and responsible manner. And we have to help them solve interpersonal problems with one another where there's enough space allowed in a disagreement for a productive conflict. Are you, are you are you getting it now? Kids have to be left alone to play and to learn the game. And yes, teachers, administrators, supervisors, playground aides, and everything else have to be there to guide them. But we have to have the ability to help them understand right and wrong. We have to have the ability to help them understand how to get along. And if we're not getting along, and if we get get placed in a position of mediation between two students and we think one student is right and one student is wrong, which can happen, there's no question about it, one can be right and one can be wrong, we have to have the ability to communicate to the person that's wrong why they're wrong, and we have to make sure that we give them the opportunity to apologize for any behaviors that they exhibited toward one another, and we have to encourage good pro-social and friendship skills. And some of this stuff is not going to happen overnight. See, some of the problems with bullying that we have right now, some of the difficulty that we have with bullying right now is a direct result of kids not understanding this game that I call playground politics. See, and the bullying epidemic, which we do face, is a direct result of exclusion. I'm not going to have the ability, I'm not going to have the um, uh uh, I don't mean uh, exclusion like uh, leaving someone out. I mean 
too many things have been excluded from our schools that help kids and teach kids how to get along and develop the necessary confidence and resiliency to face their fears and understand how to function as part of a class, a group, or maybe even a team. That's what we want to take a look at. That's what we want to do. See, the, it's, it's beyond dodgeball. You know, that, that was cited at the beginning of the article. The, the Wyndham School District was just reacting possibly to one parental complaint. And believe me, I have seen that. I worked in a district one time where kids weren't allowed to wear hats. And it said no hats are in the policy. It said hats were not allowed to be worn in the classroom. And one parent got a hold of the policy and said, well, it says here you can't wear them in the classroom, but that doesn't mean you can't wear them in the hallway. And what happened? You guessed it. Everyone had a hat on in the hallway. They had to take it off when they went into the classroom. One parental complaint can change an entire policy in a school. But, but we're not here. Schools are not designed to to deal with one parental complaint and change everything around to meet the needs of one parent because it is obvious to me that you can't please everybody all the time. You just can't. Everyone can't be pleased all the time. Somebody's going to be unhappy. And some people have to learn that, you know, things are not always going to go their way. And it goes right back to the statement that I made earlier. If everybody wins, nobody wins. See, the Wyndham School, they they were just reacting to, to one parent. I'm sure of it. And dodgeball is not the reason for the the bullying. Dodgeball is not contributing to the bullying. Dodgeball just gives gives kids who are bullies, you know, the venue to act out. That's all. It gives them the venue to act out. And what we have to learn how to do is discipline the bully and strengthen the victim. That's the biggest thing that we have to do. Discipline the bully and strengthen the victim. Victims need resiliency. Victims need to develop confidence. No one develops confidence if they're not coached on how to do something. And then once they start to really you know, develop a skill in terms of either a relationship or uh, academically or in terms of a sport or whatever, we slowly let them start to do things on their own. I mean, you know, you don't throw a kid into a lake that can't swim. What you do is you bring them out there and you, you hold them and you let them float a little bit, and you stand alongside of them, and you work with them. You don't give a, a two-year-old a bat and a ball and tell them to go out and play. And see how well you do with your friend. 
they won't know what to do. You you don't give them basketballs when they're two or three and say, go ahead and play on your own, you'll be fine. They don't know. So, therefore, we shouldn't expect kids who are two, three, four, and five years old to understand the win-win mentality that doesn't exist. They need to understand win-lose. They need to be taught that. They need to be graceful losers. I, and I, I honestly believe, in, as growing up, growing up as into an adult, over a period of time, okay, adults who become parents and so on don't understand this stuff themselves. They don't. And they would just assume run on the field when the ref gets the call wrong. They just assume yell at the coach. You know, I mean, let me tell you, my my daughter has got a, you know, a um, soccer coach. Do I agree with everything that he does? Of course not. All I can tell you is this: I'm not out there coaching. He is. I'll give him credit for doing that. And if and if uh, my daughter complains about the coach, I'll say he's the coach. Years ago, there was a line that was used about me. It was, and it was said that the principle isn't always right, but the principle is always the principle, and that's true. And if I, if I'm in the position where I have to make a decision, I make it, and everyone else has to, has to live with it. It's win lose. My decision was the one that I decided to make, whether or not I had. 30 other people who didn't like it. Adults today have to learn how to coach their kids through this game. Adults today have to be the ones that are there. We have to allow kids to make mistakes. We have to allow kids to compete. We have to allow them to fall if, in fact, they're going to fall. We have to help them recognize and respect the skills, ability, and the um, even the appearance of others. We have to teach our kids how to communicate, and we have to uh, allow them allow them to settle sometimes differences on their own as they grow older. Once we get involved and we bring our own agenda to the table between two kids where we we want to eliminate spelling bees and we complain that I didn't get a trophy and so on, we are teaching our kids nothing more that they are entitled and they can get anything that they want to get. So, in closing... Teach your kids the game of playground politics. Sometimes you got to leave them alone. Sometimes you got to get involved. Know what you're going to teach them. Help them respect the abilities of others. Help them understand that they're going to lose. Help them settle conflict. And teach them how to disagree with the right attitude. And just allow them to grow, mature, and be, and become strong.
strong adults. And I think at that point, at that point, what we're we're really going to start to see a change in some of the intergenerational tendencies that we now see where some pretty bad behavior is passed down from parents to children. My name is Jim Burns. You have been in the Bullyproof Classroom. Please go to BullyproofClassroom.com. Take a look around. You'll find some things there that you're probably going to be able to use. Remember, this show will be on iTunes, uh, like, real quick, uh, probably within the next 15 minutes. Uh, enjoy your evening. Uh, just, uh, I think I think the Mets are on tonight. So, hey, take a look at a ball game. I know the Knicks are on. They're playing. They're in the playoffs. You know, enjoy all that all that you have, uh, and we're going to see you next week on the 29th. We have a very special interview coming up uh, with a gal named Josie Milner, who's doing her best to help stop bullying. She's 17 year old, 17 years old, and she is a musician. And I look forward to speaking with her. You guys have a great night. everybody. My name is Jim Burns and welcome to the Bullyproof Classroom Podcast. These podcasts are designed to provide teachers, parents, administrators, or mental health professionals with some skills, strategies, and tips to help deal with the bullying epidemic that we face today in this country. You can listen to over 180 podcasts by going to blogtalkradio.com slash the Bullyproof Classroom or on iTunes. Just go to iTunes and search the Bullyproof Classroom in the category Podcasts. Also, please visit our website at www.bullyproofclassroom.com and subscribe to the Anti-Bullying Tip of the Day, and you can have an anti-bullying tip delivered to your email inbox every day. I hope that you find this podcast helpful and ask that you forward it to a friend or a colleague so we can all do our part in providing a bullyproof and safe physical and emotional climate for our students and our children. So listen now and enjoy this podcast as you receive the Anti-Bullying Tip of the Week. Think back to one of the best teachers you ever had. What was it about this person that made you feel so special as a student?
Any thoughts? It's not what they taught you. It's how you felt when you were in their presence. It's no big secret that learning is emotional as well as mental. I have diagrammed the brain for many of my students. And if you would like a copy of this diagram, please email me at proactive7 at verizon.net. This diagram explains the emotional process that is involved in learning. But for now, what you need to know is that all incoming information has to pass through the emotions before it can be processed for higher order thinking by the neocortex. Any time the brain is placed under stress, it will downshift and go into the brain stem for survival. There are only two ways to survive and we all know them. Fight or flight. Kids who operate in the fight mode need to develop respect. Those in the flight mode, responsibility. How much stress do we cause our students by our attitudes or maybe our inability to discipline in a manner that balances rules and regulations and compassion and understanding? Realize that if you are causing stress, the relationship between you and your students will be the first thing to go and disrespect will become imminent. The bully-victim dynamic is impacted greatly by stress. What a bully may never think of doing to you as the teacher, he or she will take out on his or her classmates. Do an immediate assessment of your classroom climate and determine what can be done to create a more relaxed and friendly learning environment. Do it now, because teaching respect is emotional. This has been your anti-bullying tip of the week. I had to change my vocabulary. I used to say that kids needed to obey. Now I use the word comply. Teachers didn't like it and thought it was too much like dog training. I mean, we expect dogs to obey, right? Well, mine doesn't, but that's another story. So I watered it down. Comply sounds better than obey. I myself compromised. I know they mean the same thing, right? Wrong. What's the definition of obedience? Anybody? Let me help you out. Obedience is doing what you're told when you're told to do it with a good attitude. Our students can comply in many ways, but still lack the correct attitude and timing. Ask one of your students to sit down and determine if he sat down on his terms or yours. How long did it take him to get into his seat? Oh, he complied. But when and how is still the question.
Compliance can also be very temporary. Obedience is very permanent. I don't have to keep asking. Wouldn't it be nice to ask a kid to do something and have him or her just do it? Bullies comply all the time, but in a very temporary way. Permanence comes when our demands are immediately met and when the student has the right attitude. I left the New Jersey Turnpike one day and saw a sign that said, You've left the New Jersey Turnpike. Obey local speed laws. Tip 2 tells us that obedience isn't such a dirty word after all. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to your premium podcast right here in your bullyproof classroom. I can say what I want to say when I want to say it. I guess that's true. I'll add one additional line with a consequence. Let's face it, you can't scream fire in Macy's. Well, unless there's a fire. If not, you'll probably get arrested. Freedom of speech is not the freedom to say what you want, but the wisdom to say what you ought. This problem gets worse as kids get older. Young children are always taught to tell the truth and are always asked to express themselves rather than throw a tantrum or cry uncontrollably when things don't go their way. This seems to be a good approach until the kids ask your best friend if they're wearing a wig or why they're so fat. So much for full disclosure and freedom of expression. I sat with my late sister Abby at a Thanksgiving table many years ago. My daughter Sarah was four years old. She had adults playing the rhyming game where she set the rules and made people aware when it was their turn to talk. My sister leaned over and said to me, she's controlling the whole table. I realized at that point how true it was but saw it as being very innocent and it was. But the danger in allowing this to continue comes when children get older and believe that they're the only ones that need to be heard, and they spend more time trying to respond than truly listening to someone else. Then as they become adults, they don't have a clear understanding of how to be an attentive or empathic listener, and they spend more time ignoring others and being rude and interruptive. Chasing your students and your own children about their language or negative attitude when they talk to someone, and their response will probably be, I don't care. Rest assured they will, 
get them to break this bad habit now or one day it'll cost them their job or maybe their marriage. Words need to be fitly spoken. Even the truth needs to be delivered in a kind, caring way with the desire to help, not to hurt. Only a fool will utter their whole mind, burning bridges and leaving once positive relationships in a wake of turmoil and pain. Teach your students and your children to say what's on their mind with the right attitude and the right motive, and above all, help them to become a good listener who doesn't just listen to respond, but has a genuine interest in what others are saying to them. You'll be improving the school climate and your home climate as well, and you'll be gearing your kids for lifelong success as adults. That was your premium podcast right here in the Bullyproof Classroom. Hi, everybody. My name is Jim Burns, and this is your anti-bullying tip of the week for the week of January 27th, 2014, right here in your Bullyproof Classroom. No one likes to change. It's tough to do. If you have any bad habits, you know, smoking or excessive drinking, eating or spending, then you know what I'm talking about. You wake up in the morning realizing that you've sworn off cigarettes and are on a diet and almost feel depressed knowing that you can't have your coffee in a Marlboro this morning. Oh, we will quit, but it may take lung cancer or an oxygen tank before we do. Change, you see, is painful, very painful. Sometimes it requires a series of epiphanies before complete change takes place. Change is very incremental and it will sneak up on you. A pound a month is a 12-pound weight gain at the end of the year. And by the way, it was fun eating what you wanted and when you wanted it. Now to lose it, it's not quite as much fun. Change takes a leap of faith. Knowing that if you stay the course and watch what you eat, you'll slowly lose those few pounds that you gained. It hurts. It requires patience and the knowledge that you might revisit old behaviors from time to time. My good friend Paul coined a term that I like. Change a bully. How hard would this be? Kids don't have a long-range vision. They really don't see how their behaviors now are going to impact them and others down the road. They do some of the things that they do because of a series of behaviors that they have learned over the years. If you're going to try and change a bully, we have to have the same patience that we have with ourselves when we're trying to make changes. 
we have to realize the incremental process and accept small victories with the understanding that this kid who was a bully is going through the process of a painful change. He will revisit old behaviors and make a ton of mistakes. Changing a bully is a process that requires consequences combined with patience and understanding. Don't give up. This kid's lifelong success is going to be determined by his or her ability to recognize the changes that he or she needs to make. My name is Jim Burns. That was your anti-bullying tip of the week for the week of January 27, 2014, right here in your Bullyproof Classroom. Ah, yes, we all need to learn how to cooperate, even though we might disagree. Now, does this tip have anything to do with bullying? The answer might surprise you. Kids who have not been taught that they have a responsibility to comply with the rules of a family, a school, or a society, believe that they can say and do anything that they want. One of the highest forms of maturity is the ability to cooperate, even though you might disagree. Bullies lack empathy and are never in tune with the expectations of others. So we need to begin to hold kids accountable for non-compliance and start to discipline for a poor attitude and insist on cooperation. Remember, kids don't always have to agree they just have to cooperate. The manifestation of disrespect in a child is laziness. That's right, laziness. It's not that the child won't do things, he just won't do them for you. That's why two teachers can have a very different opinion of the same child. The child disrespects one teacher and not the other. Disrespect has to be corrected, but how we correct it 
can determine if the child is going to learn the quality of respect or not. When you ask a child to do something, use the instruction, warning, and correction process. If the child doesn't comply with your instructions, offer one and only one warning. The warning is not a prelude to punishment, but rather an opportunity to determine if the child heard and understood you. With the warning, make sure the child understands what the consequences will be if he or she doesn't comply the next time and plan to follow through with the consequence, if applicable, of course. Too many warnings can send the wrong message, but more importantly can frustrate you as the teacher. The frustration can cause you to react in anger. Always be sure to be strong, firm, and direct when teaching respect. At the same time, be sure you yourself are being respectful while correcting the behavior. Even bullies should be treated with respect. Teaching respect? Yeah, we have to correct it when we don't see it. Hi everybody, welcome to the Bullyproof Classroom Podcasts. These podcasts are designed to provide a unique perspective on bullying and other school, home, and community issues that are related to the growing problem of disrespect, irresponsibility, and poor relationships. Your host for these podcasts is Jim Burns, an educator and administrator with over 40 years of experience in public education. Jim is a college instructor and the designer of the graduate course, The Bullyproof Classroom, a course designed that provides his students with permanent help, not temporary relief, as they battle the bullying epidemic. Now, here is your host, Jim Burns. You know, I never wanted to go to college, never thought I was smart enough. My father had a different plan for me. He told me I was going whether I wanted to or not. You see, I wanted to take over the family business, which was a bar. I mean, after all, in my senior year in high school, I was taking classes like Chinese literature and woodshop. I don't think I took one college-level class in high school, so how would any college accept me? I made a deal with my father. I'd apply to three colleges, and if any one of them accepted me, I'd go. So I applied to a junior college, a state school, and to some school in the backwoods of Virginia. They all accepted me. So I went to the state school. I think I mentioned this before in another podcast, but I'll say it again. My first semester in college, I had a cumulative average of a 1.0. That's a D. I got a letter from the college telling me to shape up or I was going to be asked to leave. I showed the letter to my father and said to him, See, I told you I couldn't do it. He looked at me and he said, You better do it because I'm selling the bar. 
Well, I ended up graduating from college with a lot of help from a lot of professors with a 2.9 cumulative average. If you do the math, you'll find out that was just about straight A's. What motivated me, you might ask? Well, fear with a capital F. I had to do it. There was no safety net. Yeah, I was afraid and scared and a lot of other things, but you know what I, I, you know what? I did it. I worked with a great psychiatrist one time, and he made the most unbelievable statement to me that you could ever imagine. He said to me, Jim, before a kid can really be disciplined, you have to have fear. No, not a fear of physical punishment, but a fear of disappointing someone, or even a fear of a strong reaction. I think we could substitute the word respect here as well. Kids and adults will usually fear what they respect. Respect is another dying quality in our culture, and we're going to have to resurrect this quality if our kids are going to have a shot at lifelong success. Do kids have a healthy fear of adults today? Do they respect adults, or better yet, do they respect one another? Kids today believe they can say and do what they want when they want. And it's time to begin to instill a healthy fear again into our kids and make them shudder at the idea that they might disappoint somebody. I am really tired of the I don't care attitude. And let's face it, if it wasn't for fear, I wouldn't be doing this podcast right now. And I would not have had a shot at the career that I have and and the lifelong success that I've achieved. My name is Jim Burns and you have just been in the Bullyproof Classroom. Well, hi again, everybody, and welcome back to Anti-Bullying 101. These podcasts are designed to create awareness about the bullying epidemic and inform teachers, administrators, parents, and students about the dangers of bullying and why we have to take a comprehensive approach when dealing with the problem. My name is Jim Burns. I'm a retired high school administrator with over 40 years of experience in education. Currently, I'm a college instructor and have designed the Bullyproof Classroom, a graduate course that provides my students with permanent help, not temporary relief as they battle the bullying epidemic. We're going to continue our series and are going to be talking about behaviors that kids exhibit that, when not dealt with correctly, will weaken any classroom or school. When too many of these behaviors exist, Everyone can suffer from what I call the kryptonite syndrome. Today we're going to be discussing a problem that is pervasive in schools that leads to power struggles and a disruption in the school climate. What do we do with the kids that are just disrespectful and how do we hold these kids 
accountable. I was driving in my car one day and was staring at one of the five bumper stickers that were on the car in front of me. One of the bumper stickers made a lot of sense. It said, if you can read this, thank a teacher. I never had to be reminded of this when I was a kid. I always thanked my teachers. But more importantly, I respected my teachers. I didn't have a choice. I had to be respectful. I didn't even have to think twice. I found out very early on as a student, but before I had a chance to be successful academically, I had to stay in my seat, not talk back, and do what I was told when I was told to do it. I realized that if I made any attempt to complain about my teachers, my parents weren't hearing it, which really benefited me as a student. Today, if a kid goes home and starts to complain about his teacher, instead of the parents saying, do what you're told, they can almost begin to complain right along with their kid, planting seeds of disrespect in the child's head that ultimately will interfere with the child's academic success. Kids who sense a division of authority between their parents and the school go to school every day with a poor attitude and are being programmed for a lifetime of educational as well as employment-related problems. As a teacher and administrator myself, I have watched the decline of respect in education today. It's almost as if society wants to censor the teacher and prevent them from saying what needs to be said to a student that will help the student improve academically. Teachers have to measure every word, And if constructive suggestions are offered to a student by a teacher, it's viewed by the student and, at times, his parent as an insult that is going to damage the kid's self-esteem for a lifetime. As a high school student, I was no different than any other kid. I always tried to get away with as much as possible and always looked to cut corners academically. I was a freshman in high school and turned in a history assignment to my social studies teacher. This was an assignment that was given to me two weeks prior. I worked on it the night before. Within a day or two, the teacher handed the assignment back to the class. My assignment wasn't returned, but he asked to see me after class. I met with him and he said to me, What is this? Is this all you're capable of? Jimmy, don't BS me. I was shocked and embarrassed, and I hung my head. Finally, I looked at him and said, Can I do it over? He said to me, Can you? Are you capable of better work? Well, I worked on it again, and with his help, I ended up turning it in and receiving a B for the assignment. I developed a tremendous relationship with this teacher and respected him because he didn't feel as if he had to measure his words. I had a high regard for this man's opinion and didn't even think twice about trying this again. Unfortunately, if a teacher tries to do this today, 
The kid usually goes home, they tell their parents, and a meeting is arranged to question or berate the teacher. The sad part is that the that this is allowed to go on, and it's very commonplace in education and in society. Schools today are constantly on the hot seat to improve test scores, reduce the dropout rate, and to be in compliance with federally mandated programs that provide government funds. Every day in the news, disrespectful behavior is reported in schools with bullying and school shootings almost becoming commonplace. Society wants to level the ground and create an environment where no one's in charge and authority figures can't even offer constructive suggestions to students and employees to help improve their performance. They're muzzled by the same system that judge their abilities. The only way students will be successful academically is when everyone is involved in the educational process and they learn to respect the human delivery system, the teacher. My name is Jim Burns. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get more information, you go to my YouTube channel as well at Anti-Bullying 101 or go to my website at www.bullyproofclassroom.com There you'll find some great lesson plans, products, and activities that you can use in your classroom to help with any bullying or behavior-related problems that you may be experiencing. Also, you'll have an opportunity there to register for an online course that deals with the bullying problem and, once again, how to motivate kids, how to teach respect, and encourage responsibility. Once again, I'm Jim Burns. Thanks for listening to this podcast, everybody. Well, hi again, everybody, and welcome back to Anti-Bullying 101. These podcasts are designed to create awareness about the bullying epidemic and inform teachers, administrators, parents, and students about the dangers of bullying and why we have to take a comprehensive approach when dealing with the problem. My name is Jim Burns. I'm a retired high school administrator with over 40 years of experience in education. Currently, I'm a college instructor and have designed the Bullyproof Classroom, a graduate course that provides my students with permanent help, not temporary relief as they battle the bullying epidemic. We're going to continue our series and are going to be talking about behaviors that kids exhibit that when not dealt with correctly will weaken any classroom or school. When too many of these behaviors exist, Everyone can suffer from what I call the kryptonite syndrome. Today we're going to be discussing a problem that is pervasive in schools that leads to power struggles and a disruption in the school climate. What do we do with the kids that are just disrespectful and how do we hold these kids accountable?
I was driving in my car one day and was staring at one of the five bumper stickers that were on the car in front of me. One of the bumper stickers made a lot of sense. It said, if you can read this, thank a teacher. I never had to be reminded of this when I was a kid. I always thanked my teachers. But more importantly, I respected my teachers. I didn't have a choice. I had to be respectful. I didn't even have to think twice. I found out very early on as a student, but before I had a chance to be successful academically, I had to stay in my seat, not talk back, and do what I was told when I was told to do it. I realized that if I made any attempt to complain about my teachers, my parents weren't hearing it, which really benefited me as a student. Today, if a kid goes home and starts to complain about his teacher, instead of the parents saying, do what you're told, they can almost begin to complain right along with their kid, planting seeds of disrespect in the child's head that ultimately will interfere with the child's academic success. Kids who sense a division of authority between their parents and the school go to school every day with a poor attitude and are being programmed for a lifetime of educational as well as employment-related problems. As a teacher and administrator myself, I have watched the decline of respect in education today. It's almost as if society wants to censor the teacher and prevent them from saying what needs to be said to a student that will help the student improve academically. Teachers have to measure every word, and if constructive suggestions are offered to a student by a teacher, it's viewed by the student and, at times, his parent as an insult that is going to damage the kid's self-esteem for a lifetime. As a high school student, I was no different than any other kid. I always tried to get away with as much as possible and always looked to cut corners academically. I was a freshman in high school and turned in a history assignment to my social studies teacher. This was an assignment that was given to me two weeks prior. I worked on it the night before. Within a day or two, the teacher handed the assignment back to the class. My assignment wasn't returned, but he asked to see me after class. I met with him and he said to me, What is this? Is this all you're capable of? Jimmy, don't BS me. I was shocked and embarrassed, and I hung my head. Finally, I looked at him and said, Can I do it over? He said to me, Can you? Are you capable of better work? Well, I worked on it again, and with his help, I ended up turning it in and receiving a B for the assignment. I developed a tremendous relationship with this teacher and respected him because he didn't feel as if he had to measure his words. I had a high regard for this man's opinion and didn't even think twice about trying this again. Unfortunately, if a teacher tries to do this today, the kid usually goes home, they tell their parents, and a meeting is arranged to question or berate the teacher. The sad part is that the 
that this is allowed to go on and it's very commonplace in education and in society. Schools today are constantly on the hot seat to improve test scores, reduce the dropout rate, and to be in compliance with federally mandated programs that provide government funds. Every day in the news, disrespectful behavior is reported in schools with bullying and school shootings almost becoming commonplace. Society wants to level the ground and create an environment where no one's in charge and authority figures can't even offer constructive suggestions to students and employees to help improve their performance. They're muzzled by the same system that judge their abilities. The only way students will be successful academically is when everyone is involved in the educational process and they learn to respect the human delivery system, the teacher. My name is Jim Burns. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get more information, you go to my YouTube channel as well at Anti-Bullying 101 or go to my website at www.bullyproofclassroom.com There you'll find some great lesson plans, products, and activities that you can use in your classroom to help with any bullying or behavior-related problems that you may be experiencing. Also, you'll have an opportunity there to register for an online course that deals with the bullying problem and, once again, how to motivate kids, how to teach respect and encourage responsibility. Once again, I'm Jim Burns. Thanks for listening to this podcast, everybody. Well, hi again, everybody, and welcome back to Anti-Bullying 101. These podcasts are designed to create awareness about the bullying epidemic and inform teachers, administrators, parents, and students about the dangers of bullying and why we have to take a comprehensive approach when dealing with the problem. My name is Jim Burns. I'm a retired high school administrator with over 40 years of experience in education. Currently, I'm a college instructor and have designed the Bullyproof Classroom, a graduate course that provides my students with permanent help, not temporary relief as they battle the bullying epidemic. We're going to continue our series and are going to be talking about behaviors that kids exhibit that when not dealt with correctly will weaken any classroom or school. When too many of these behaviors exist, Everyone can suffer from what I call the kryptonite syndrome. Today we're going to be discussing a problem that is pervasive in schools that leads to power struggles and a disruption in the school climate. What do we do with the kids that are just disrespectful and how do we hold these kids accountable?
I was driving in my car one day and was staring at one of the five bumper stickers that were on the car in front of me. One of the bumper stickers made a lot of sense. It said, if you can read this, thank a teacher. I never had to be reminded of this when I was a kid. I always thanked my teachers. But more importantly, I respected my teachers. I didn't have a choice. I had to be respectful. I didn't even have to think twice. I found out very early on as a student that before I had a chance to be successful academically, I had to stay in my seat, not talk back, and do what I was told when I was told to do it. I realized that if I made any attempt to complain about my teachers, my parents weren't hearing it, which really benefited me as a student. Today, if a kid goes home and starts to complain about his teacher, instead of the parents saying, do what you're told, they can almost begin to complain right along with their kid, planting seeds of disrespect in the child's head that ultimately will interfere with the child's academic success. Kids who sense a division of authority between their parents and the school go to school every day with a poor attitude and are being programmed for a lifetime of educational as well as employment-related problems. As a teacher and administrator myself, I have watched the decline of respect in education today. It's almost as if society wants to censor the teacher and prevent them from saying what needs to be said to a student that will help the student improve academically. Teachers have to measure every word, and if constructive suggestions are offered to a student by a teacher, it's viewed by the student and, at times, his parent as an insult that is going to damage the kid's self-esteem for a lifetime. As a high school student, I was no different than any other kid. I always tried to get away with as much as possible and always looked to cut corners academically. I was a freshman in high school and turned in a history assignment to my social studies teacher. This was an assignment that was given to me two weeks prior. I worked on it the night before. Within a day or two, the teacher handed the assignment back to the class. My assignment wasn't returned, but he asked to see me after class. I met with him and he said to me, What is this? Is this all you're capable of? Jimmy, don't BS me. I was shocked and embarrassed, and I hung my head. Finally, I looked at him and said, Can I do it over? He said to me, Can you? Are you capable of better work? Well, I worked on it again, and with his help, I ended up turning it in and receiving a B for the assignment. I developed a tremendous relationship with this teacher and respected him because he didn't feel as if he had to measure his words. I had a high regard for this man's opinion and didn't even think twice about trying this again. Unfortunately, if a teacher tries to do this today, the kid usually goes home, they tell their parents, and a meeting is arranged to question or berate the teacher. The sad part is that the 
that this is allowed to go on and it's very commonplace in education and in society. Schools today are constantly on the hot seat to improve test scores, reduce the dropout rate, and to be in compliance with federally mandated programs that provide government funds. Every day in the news, disrespectful behavior is reported in schools with bullying and school shootings almost becoming commonplace. Society wants to level the ground and create an environment where no one's in charge and authority figures can't even offer constructive suggestions to students and employees to help improve their performance. They're muzzled by the same system that judge their abilities. The only way students will be successful academically is when everyone is involved in the educational process and they learn to respect the human delivery system, the teacher. My name is Jim Burns. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get more information, you go to my YouTube channel as well at Anti-Bullying 101 or go to my website at www.bullyproofclassroom.com There you'll find some great lesson plans, products, and activities that you can use in your classroom to help with any bullying or behavior-related problems that you may be experiencing. Also, you'll have an opportunity there to register for an online course that deals with the bullying problem and, once again, how to motivate kids, how to teach respect, and encourage responsibility. Once again, I'm Jim Burns. Thanks for listening to this podcast, everybody.